welcome to the Financial House Podcast. Today, we have with us Mr. Freddie Lim. Mr. Freddie is the co-founder and chief investment officer at StashAway. He has 17 years of experience in cross-asset investing and portfolio management. And he holds a Bachelor in Econometrics and Quantitative Economics from Monash University. So Freddie, that's actually quite a really impressive resume you have there. And you work for some of the largest investment banks all around the world. Maybe you can share some of your key takeaways from working for these investment banks. First of all, thank you for the invitation to speak here. Um, I, I'm, I was very privileged to have worked in some of the top financial institutions in the world. Um, and in fact, not just in one location. So I was in Tokyo, I was in London, I was in New York. And there was a huge innovation shift there. Technology was not like today, and banking was actually like the tech sectors, a big wave of innovations, creation of new products. So you see a lot of rock star academia, rock star, really, really intelligent people that you can get exposed to. Um, so I was fortunate to be in Tokyo, U.S., and London, where I see some of the best, best, best brains in the world in physics and in finance come together to create products. So that was a great learning experience. Okay, so uh, tell me a bit more about yourself. How old were you when you first started investing? What was the first share that you bought? <laughs> uh, my first investment was more like a trade rather than a, a single name stocks. Um, I traded the dollar yen, if I remember correctly. That was my first trade. Wow, when I was it's a complex trade. <laughs> <laughs> it was a 15-year-old trade. Um, currency was my first because um, because a few years before I did my first trade, George Soros broke the Bank of England in February 1992. And I felt like, wow, what, what power a smart fund manager you owe the central bank and the government. Uh, and I seek to understand more, and I started getting into currency trading first. So hence the first trade. So do you make money on your first trip? Well, I, I, I got too scared, uh, I got, and I, I, I suffered from all the usual uh, pitfall of a novice investor. Um, so I took profits too quickly, and then uh, the dollar yen actually went up a lot more for decades to come. <laughs> yeah. So it was a missed opportunity, but, you know, it was for fun. Yeah, well, that's a learning point. In terms of your personal investment strategy, do you have any set of rules that you have or any special strategy that you have? Well, um, the, the philosophy is the same as in how we designed the StashAway product. Um, as you knew, StashAway, um, actually, the product is pinned on what I have designed. And that's coming out of actually the personal experience. Um, I believe that people should not borrow money to invest. So that's the same for me. No leverage. No leverage. Um, I believe people should set goals early. Whether you want to get married or not, you save for it first. You may change your mind. <laughs> but you start early. So time is in your favor. You have more time, more time to compound. So that's the same thing for me. Um, and then you, I think that... Um, for medium to long-term success, people need to focus on the economy. So things like growth, inflation, uh, trends, we look at it at, uh, in, in stash away as well. It's exactly the same thing. We look at large number of economic data um, for, for, for hints on what asset class would do well. But we are ignoring the day-to-day -day noises. So my style of investing is the same as what ERA is trying to do. And as you know, ERA stands for Economic Regime 
based asset allocation. Um, so I don't know if I'm answering the question. It's really out of my personal experience, yeah. Yeah. and I'm doing the same thing as I would have done elsewhere. Yeah. No, I think the point you raise on uh, focusing on the economy in the medium term is actually a really interesting point. But a lot of uh, financial house readers, a lot of them, they work full-time jobs or they are full-time students. What would your advice be to one of these guys? How do they keep track of what's going on in the economy and at the same time juggle a full-time job? Well, um, if you're not using Stash Away, uh, aside from that, getting information from us, uh, if you want to do it yourself, it's pretty easy. It's actually a lot easier than single-name companies, right? So much can happen. Um, when it comes to aggregate economy, I think the central bank websites are very good. So the U.S. in the U.S., the, uh, the FRED, the FRED, uh, so actually you can download that as an add-in to Excel and download data from the websites. So the Philadelphia Fed maintain a large number of economic data. Uh, the ECB, the Bank of England, they all have very good websites. They even have research articles. They have charting tools on the sites. If you really want to know, you can track those macroeconomic trends fairly uh, hassle-free without paying a lot, of, without paying anything, right? So um, actually, everybody should try because to keep in mind of the broader economic trends in our lives. Those are big, big ships. If you capture those big ships correctly, and they last easily three to seven years, very prof very profitable or very protective for your own net worths. So I, I definitely recommend doing that for yourselves. Yeah. And any tips on how, how we can spot these trends before they actually happen? Um, with economic data, it's not like the market where it's very noisy and random. Um, there's a lot of persistence, so it's quite cyclical in nature. So you can, if I make it, this statement useful, if you implement your standard momentum indicator to the macro information, it's actually very useful, much more useful than trying to do it in FX or to do it in stocks. So your reader may already know basic indicators like the RSI, the MACD, you know. You know, apply them to economic indicators, give you a better, a better success rate. That's my hint. Yeah, thanks. That's, that's really good tips. Okay, there, there's this famous quote from Steve Jobs that says that you can only connect the dots looking backwards. So for yourself, looking back on your investing career, your professional career, how do you see the dots connecting? Bring you to yourself as an investor today. I'm very grateful for my educational training. Um, I'm probably one of the lucky ones, the few people who study something in university and till today use it actively every single day. Um, my background was in econometrics. I did that because I was in economics and I felt like maybe it's hard to get a job. Maybe a data sort of analytics background may help. And so I started doing a double major in economics and econometrics. Uh, and then I became, I got a double first class honors in, in that. And, and I went, and so my interest was actually in both. I like economics. I also like a data driven approach. That turns out to be the first dot that sort of aspired till today. Um, the other dots are sort of like, um, if I never was in banking, I would never have probably be part of Stashaway. Because of the ups and downs, the, the experience I've been through in my experience with fund management and banking, I've got to my own understanding of an approach. I'm not saying it's the, the approach. I'm just saying we now have our own approach, an approach that's holistic, 
right? It has been tested, stress tested. Went through lots of crises in my career, and from there learned from it and created something that guides me going forward. And in particular, um, ERAA is designed in 2008. And I've seen smart people with experience back then. They didn't know what to do. The experience didn't count because it's unprecedented, the crisis. It was a, such a large scale that no prior experience or news can prepare you for it. And hence, uh, me being a relatively junior, more mid-level person that time, I was observing my senior really senior people and see how they brave through the, the, the crisis. And I was looking for an answer. And I chanced upon a paper by the U.S. Fed governor at the time, Bank Bernanke. Uh, Bernanke and Boyvin wrote a paper in 2001. Um, it's a very technical paper, nothing to do with the crisis, but it's about them having too much information about the economy at the Fed. More than us, any one of us. They have a lot of data. But too much noise in the data. They need to find a way to get pure, nice, meaningful signal from large number of information. But that paper became the first dot I picked on. And I was looking at a lot of um, economic indicators and I was thinking about how to make them consistent, how to join the dots among all this information. As you know, it's a lot of different indicators saying different things. It's very mixed. So how do you sip out the noise and get true information? So I started digging and uh, spent a lot of years researching around that line. Um, interested user can probably know what is PCA, Principal Component Analysis, uh, and other sort of uh, noise reduction techniques. And in sound waves, people produce music. They use a lot of signal processing techniques. It's similar to that how to reduce noise and get a real signal from, from data. So I focused on that for a number of years, and I applied to finance. And eventually it led to me being a fund manager myself, cross-asset, macro, systematic. I use it across the world in a fund that manages billions of dollars with two others. And um, then today, now, we use the same framework. And we sort of simplify it here and there, but we make it more relevant for the asset allocator. As us retail private investors, we are we should think about allocating risk. I buy insurance to offset some risk. I allocate an X amount of premium. Um, I allocate to equities or I allocate to real estate. I buy a house, right? That's all allocation decisions. And hence, I think the average person is an asset allocator by heart. Um, I allocate a certain amount of savings to, to save and invest so that my kid can go to university uh, 15 years from now, right? It's an allocation decision. So we tweak what I've learned to become an allocation framework, and oh, that's ERAA. Oh, that's really interesting yeah. stuff. You had a huge, diverse experience in investing. If you can draw on that 15, 20 years of experience and go back in time and give advice to to a 25-year-old investor, what kind of advice would you give someone like that? Um, <laughs> a lot. Well, I'll pick one thing yeah. to be. Um, start early. I wish I knew the basics. So I would make it more useful for readers here. I wish my 25-year-old self take the book written by Robert Kiyosaki more seriously. Uh, only the first book, The Rich Dad, Poor Dad, not the What Comes After, because it's very commercialized after that. But Robert Kiyosaki has got all the right ingredients in the book. 
how you should save first from your, from your lifestyle spending habits, how to generate then, how to invest those savings to generate future cash flows, right? What is the cash flow quadrant? All these basic planning tools, I think those are half the battle of success to investing. The other half is uh, lower fees and maybe uh, sophisticated investment algorithms. But the parameter, the goal setting, the planning must be there first. So I wish I knew those things way earlier. I wish there were people who educated more widely. Uh, and today, you see, we have Statuary Academy. Statuary Academy actively promotes everything around those philosophies. Right? Don't borrow money to invest, start early, set goals, uh, monthly contribute, so you average into the market. So what is dollar cost averaging? What does it do? So there's so many basic, basic investment philosophy that the general public should have been educated. So when I was 25, I wish somebody was telling me this. And today, hence, Statuary is going to do that job. We're going to tell people what's the right invest, investing education Get it right first before you invest seriously. Yeah. That's why no lockup, no minimum balance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was actually just reading this quote by the DBS CEO, uh, Piyush Gupta, recently. And he was saying that uh, his advice to younger people was that in your 20s, focus on saving money, focus on the basics, don't go for high-risk investments. Only when you're in your 30s and you have a bit more familiarity with financial investments, then you go for something higher risk. Do you agree with advice like that? I partially disagree in the sense that he's assuming the user get no help. So, but if user have all this access to investing platforms or portfolio platforms like us or even any other, um, any other digital platforms, you get a lot more help than before. You can set risk more precisely. So with more time, when you start early, you have more time, you can take more risks. And then as you head towards the goal time, then you want to start reducing risk. So in a way, I understand uh, how, why Priyush is saying it this way, but he's assuming people trade stocks and trade Bitcoins or risky stuff. I think he's right there. But when it comes to a balanced, diversified portfolio, and Statue is not the only one, right? I mean, there's so many people who can help you here. I think people can start early and take more risk uh, because they have more time to recover. Okay, so actually on this note, what do you think is the most common mistake that young or beginner investors make? Um, I, if I have to pick in our current digital age, um, we're dealing with exponentially more noise from traditional media, social media, and Donald Trump's Twitter. <laughs> and so I would say that the first mistake now, today, for beginning investors would be to react to news flow media or noises, and get whipsawed by the market. The whipsaw is the worst thing that can happen to a beginner investor. For example, uh, let's say the S&P 500 is down 10%, you sold. And then it's up 5%, you go and buy back. Then it's back down 5%, what do you do? You just go whipsaw a few times, you, you just easily lost 10-15% of your return and just by reacting to it. A person who actually averaged into the market over time, did not care, was relatively no noise, uh, would have done better than the person that reacts to the news flow, right? So I would say, number one, ignore the noise. But let, let's say it's a new investor. How does he train himself to ignore the noise? Because it's human tendency, once your stock portfolio falls 10%, you get worried, you think about selling. How do you advise these guys to 
to combat such tendencies. Well, the right plan. Well, whether you are trading or speculating or investing, a right plan. So, what's the risk level that before you enter the trade? What's your risk budget? If I bought dollar against the Japanese yen, where's my stop loss level? And you know, is that one thousand dollars? If I hit the level, I'm going to lose one thousand dollars. I have a hundred thousand. It's only one percent. So you have planned a loss amount. You knew where it's going to be, and when you get hurt, you you know this is a number, and you get out of it. You move on. You do a new trade. So even a novice trader should be more disciplined with the the planning. It's, I think it's called risk budgeting, and allocate uh, X percent of losses uh, to you know to your portfolio. Don't just think about the good side. So it's all about planning. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Peter Thiel has this really great question that he likes to ask our interviewees. So I'm actually going to try this out here. Tell me one thing about investing today that you know to be true, but which not many other people in the world would agree with you on. I think I yes, uh, that's a very good question. Um, I, I I mean, for me, I would make it simple. I think investing is not about returns first; it's about risk first. And then you maximize every dollar risk taken. That, to me, is the core definition of investing. I know a lot of people will disagree, <laughs> mm. um, because if you think about modern portfolio theory and the so-called efficient frontier and all these concepts you learn in school, it's really about setting the x-axis, the risk, right? target the risk first, and then you maximize return against. You have a portfolio that comes together better than any individual assets, right? But then it starts with risk first, and I think that's particularly true, um, because if you are going to overreact to the market when the risk is set wrong, then it's sort of like you are you're destined for for failure. It's already by design on day one. But if you set a risk, say it's twenty percent extreme risk, twenty percent down, I'm fine. I can sleep. I wouldn't react to it. I get on my life. Yeah, chances are like you wouldn't react, and you stay on the game. And long-term trend carries you forward, and you do you do well over time, right? I think so. First is risk first, risk focus. Then think about return. If I decide that maybe my risk appetite is I can lose up to thirty percent in stocks and on a hundred k portfolio, mm. so you're saying I, I should decide that I need to that I can lose this amount before I make any investment. Yes. And however, it's easier said than done. People may think that they can lose. Thirty percent, but then when it comes to the reality, actually losing close to it, and then your mental will be challenged. So you never knew until you get there. So the more information you supply, say the Stashway app, the better we can be more precise. But then we normally would suggest as well. Why don't there's nothing to stop you from our, on our platform from setting up multiple portfolio and different risk point and invest a little bit first just to get a feel for it. Before you select a particular risk level, I think that is a another way to go about it. How do you advise for me to go about and think about how much loss I can take? Because maybe I think I can lose up to fifty、uh, percent、mm. of my portfolio、mm. until it actually happens. Then I decide. I would recommend this exercise.、Yeah. It's actually meditation, meditative. So close your eyes, forget all the noises. You know, you can sit down, get comfortable. You can slouch, but breathe well, and then just imagine now. Your dad gave you a million sing dollars. Hmm, sounds very good, very yeah, comfortable. Fantastic. <laughs> Immediately go and invest in the portfolio, right? Is um, and then you lose half of it. It's 
500k tomorrow. So let us think and imagine it. Hmm, it's only 500k. What can I buy with it? It's less. Okay. Then think now. How much return I need to go back to 1 million? 100%, not 50%. And then now think about the uphill battle. Are you ready for that? The biggest pain with suffering from losses is not into the losses. It's after the loss happened. Because the path to recovery is severely difficult. In this case, you drop 50%. You need two times more after that to recover. And then you've got to imagine that. You've got to meditate on that. How much time? And then do you, are you ready for that? Right? So... I would say, do some meditative exercises, visualize, picture yourself in that situation. Is that what you want? And then now picture an alternative of 20%, which looks much better, feels much more comfortable, right? Would you prefer 20 or would you prefer 50? You've got to ask yourself. You've got to meditate it. It's a, a lot of people may disagree with my approach. It sounded a bit more psychologist-driven. But investing is a lot, a lot of it. Half of the first half is all about psychology. Actually, on that note, a, a lot of investment books out there advocate for diversification. They say that you should put some money in stocks. You shouldn't put too much money into one particular stock. But at the same time, there's a famous quote from Warren Buffett that says that diversification is protection against, igno against ignorance. Yes. What, what are your thoughts on diversification versus concentrated bets? Well, I, I think uh, if you look at what Warren Buffett has done himself, he recommends a general public diversification, but he himself is a highly concentrated investor. He will look at specific companies, he will buy it over, he will change the manager, he will get involved and make it a better company, and then he will, he will resell it to the public later. So he's actually a very different person than what he recommends the general public. And it's for good reason because he has the expertise and resources to do concentrated investments and be better than most people in the world. Whereas most of us, unless you're very sure you have an edge over everybody else, you are protected by using diversification. I would suggest somewhere in the middle. Some of us, by nature of our own research, own time span, have, a certain, have developed a certain expertise in a certain area. We should not give that up. It's an allocation question. If I want to be in cryptocurrencies and I study so much of it, I want to be involved in it, it's fine. Maybe it's a 5% allocation question or maybe it's a 10% allocation out of your whole net worth. It cannot be your entire net worth into it, right? So it's really an allocation question. And you allocate thinking about risk. If it drops 80%, I have 5% in it, I lose 4 out of my whole net worth, it's fine, right? But I have other things going on. So maybe somewhere in the middle where we still make some concentrated investment, but we know what percentage it is to my net worth. And I'm comfortable with losing a lot of it here because I have other pockets. So some diversification, some specialties, mix it up and allocate accordingly. Great advice. Okay, so Freddie, what do you think will be the dominant team in investing <coughs> over the next 5 to 10 years? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, a lot of people would like to say it's a trade war and, 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 and all those. Um, I would say, look, um, I, the easy answer is, I think, it's a mini-cold war. 
The U.S. is going to focus squarely on China because China is rising way too fast. It's starting to threaten the、uh, sovereignty.、Um, that's not going to go away. We have a mini version of the U.S.-Russia situation. So today, mostly veil, no war, but more cold war sort of thing.、Um, this is not going to go away, and most investors have to learn to deal with it for many, many years to come, maybe our entire lifetime. So that's how Stashway is prepared in terms of mental. And then the way to prepare for it is actually not to even overanalyze it. It's also just to go by the numbers. If the trade war is actually going to affect the economy, track the economic numbers. Let the effect shows up, and then you adjust your portfolio to it. But it's not even sure the trade war could actually affect the economy. If I quote Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winner in economics. He say he says that it doesn't matter. It's really a fraction of a percent of a GDP. And especially in the last CIO、uh, insights, we published a worst case scenario for the trade war, and the numbers wasn't wasn't that terrifying. We made it more terrifying, but still, it's within the realms of a market correction. If you、uh, just for the readers' benefit, the number we came up was、um, we assume Donald Trump get reelected next year, five and a half of more years of Trump. And then it will take his successor two years to unwind his policies, so seven and a half years of trade war impact. And we quantify that. We also quantify that one impact on GDP is more in output. We also quantify that the market does not just worry about loss of output. The market worry about hiring plans, supply chain disruptions, all the secondary effect. After doing all this multiple, we came up with a number. Uh, around fifteen point six percent of S and P five hundred impact, maximum impact, and that easily can be negated by the central bank, and is already showing up the last few days, right? So central bank can offset a lot of that risk. So even if we assume full impact on the trade war, it was still very manageable by the market and by central bankers. Actually, on that note, a lot of、uh, prominent economists, guys like Ray Dalio. They are talking about in the next recession because interest rates are already at zero percent. There's limited ammunition for central banks like the ECB and the Japanese banks to really cut rates, and so they are projecting that there's going to be a a new wave of monetary policies, things like what we saw in the 1940s for for US. Any thoughts on this and how this would affect investments? I am.、Um, I assume you're talking about the so-called MMT. Modern monetary theory. Yes, yes. I'm struggling with it too because the theory is is virtually the same as what we we have today, except that you remove the central bank, you just have the government deciding to spend however way once and issue government bonds and just just borrow its way because interest rates is low, and and since inflation is so hard to generate, why don't we just spend our way around it? So this is assuming that the world always stay the same, right? And and、uh, it's very dangerous, I feel, because central bank is sort of the independent entity to the government, providing a check of balances. When government policies are too inflationary, the central bank will hold hold us back, and that's what sort of frustrates Donald Trump and the likes, because they couldn't control the central bank. Now, central bank independence is here for a reason, right? To provide a sanity check. Now, when you have monetary theory like that, they do away with the central bank. You end up with easily like a Venezuela, Eduardo, Ecuador, where you what last year we seen a thousand percent in inflation. Those are just countries that 
completely mismanaged his own economic policies, and because of over-involvement of governments, because of a lack of independence in central banks, right? That's the kind of risk we're talking about. I think it's a really dangerous concept. Um, but from the perspective of a Singapore investor, there are all these dominant trends going around the world. How are we supposed to react to something like that? Or is the solution just to not react? No, the solution is not to react. Because um, even if you look at what happens today to central bank policies, the central bank itself, or even government, we're reacting to what? We're reacting to growth numbers and inflation numbers. So then the, we should focus on the source of decision-making, and the source is always try to be forward-looking about growth and inflation. What indicators can we look at as a bit ahead? What gives us an edge, right, but on growth and inflation? That's a really key thing. If you look at all the asset classes, ultimately, uh, something called real growth. Real growth is inflation-adjusted growth, right? Inflation-adjusted growth is the ultimate driver of asset class return in the medium and long term. So, um, we should so focus accordingly. It's really growth versus inflation. So if you could only make one investment for the rest of your life and it couldn't be stashed away, what would you buy? <laughs> Alright, I, I like gold, not because I'm Chinese. <laughs> I like gold, I like diamond as well. But I like gold for a very special reason. Um, first of all, um, supply-wise, there's about 192 billion tons of gold being mined. And there's another 51 billion tons left in the ground. And it's harder and harder to get to it. Some people may say, yeah, supply looks limited, but maybe we can synthesize gold. But as far as I know, to synthesize gold in a large scale is something that's very costly, not very easily doable. And the cost of mining has gone up three times the last few years. So from a supply-demand angle, uh, gold is a super cycle investment. Super cycle meaning it's super long dated. You're making a core that is limited. The demand, however, stays. So it's going to get more and more pricey over time. So it's a patient, patient, super long-dated call. And as you realize, Stashaway's algorithm has been always allocating around 10 to 15% in gold for very, very good reasons. Now, second and third reason are more important as well. The second reason is that if you look at um, uh, from the risk angle, the more uncertain the world is, the better it is for gold. It's a proven commodity for uncertainty. They just think about Europe, right? You've got all these countries, their own central bank, preparing for a scenario, something they don't say today. What if the euro currency break out one day? It's always a risk, right? They're so unhappy among themselves about anything. And let's, in the event where the euro actually breaks up, the country with the largest uh, precious metal reserve would be able to issue a new currency in a, in a more credible manner. So it's because it's physically backed. So there is another angle where in a world, if we have this unprecedented event, Europe breaking up, the gold would actually be a number one investment because the central bank themselves are buying it every year. Right? Even China, think about China. The People's Bank of China has been buying gold uh, increasingly over the years. It's another way of arming themselves against uncertainty of the trade war. Right, so any it's a, like a it's, it's just a commodity that's of choice by central bank to back their nations with. So I believe from all these angles, gold is a super cycle investment. Um, you, as long as you're patient with it, it's going to handsomely reward you. 
Actually, actually, that's a really interesting one because I know a lot of great investors, even guys like Ray Dalio, they're actually loading up their portfolio with gold for some of the reasons that you just mentioned. Have you been following the recent Astria 5 bonds? Um, the, by this, uh, by Tomasic? Yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. subsidiary by Tomasic. Right, right. So there seems to be a lot of efforts to, to build up the retail bond market mm-hmm. in Singapore. Maybe you can share some of your thoughts about retail bonds for mm-hmm. Singapore investors and are they an appropriate investment? I, I um, yeah, it's a it's a great question because um, the quality, the credit rating, and the quality of the the names in Singapore are, are super high. As as you know, Singapore government is one of the most well-run government in the world, and then hence related government agencies are comparatively well-run. And bonds issued by government agencies in Singapore is also deemed by investors to be of very high quality. So that is a given. The only issue is that the yields are also very low now. When the Tomasic bond first came out, it was around, correct me if I'm wrong, it's around 2.6%. Yeah, 2.7. 2.7. Yeah. And then after the issuance, it went down to 1.99. And today, I, I think it's even lower. Rates are coming so much lower. So the quality also means that you don't get uh, as high a yield as before. So I think for investors, it's a planning question. If you are, have this cash management, uh, you don't really want to take risks, uh, because you need the money in three years or five years' time for a, a down payment for a flat or what have you, yeah, those are good places to to park money and to fight inflation. If inflation is two and you're getting two, so you're neutral. But then in terms of capital appreciation, then they are not going to serve this purpose. They're more about capital preservation. What about the higher risk fixed income products, things like the 6% for petrols by high flux, things... I know capital infrastructure, they recently did a 10-year perpetual, about 4.75%. Any thoughts on such higher yield investments? I'm personally more cautious in uh, perpetuals and also where the companies are not government or agency related. And you're taking an unlimited meaning forever, perpetuals forever exposure uh, with your money. Uh, So extra research and vigilance needs to be uh, needs to be exercised there. And also, um, I actually prefer people use the ETF approach here. If you can buy a REITs ETF and own 23 REITs, it's very diversified and give you a pretty good U as well. Why not? But by being invested in a particular name, you subject yourself to reducing credit risk like um, Elon Musk smoking weed on radio and Tesla stock price move. The corporate bond of that company would do the same. Right, so it's uh, here where I exercise caution, and uh, I would recommend a more diversified approach. You, you actually raised a really interesting point on the REIT ETFs, but the REIT ETFs in Singapore charge pretty high expense fees. Uh, the, from what I remember, it's about zero point four, zero point five percent. With this in mind, do you still think REIT ETFs are good? investment for Singapore investors, or should they just go out there and buy five different capital land or maple tree REITs? I think the cost of directly buying a REIT is unknown. It's embedded in your NAV, because it does cost money for the REIT, a specific REIT operator to pay for expenses, right? They do. So you are anyway incurring expenses, just you don't see it as a cash outflow. But in terms of the fund manager that actually invests in 20, like 20 or 30 REITs, 0.4% fee by global standards is actually not very high. It's still quite reasonable. But the bigger overarching question is that when you make a REIT investment, right, at the right time 
or the right economic situation, that is a bigger question. And rather than paying a bit more on expense ratio, uh, let me allow me to elaborate. Uh, when you buy a REIT, you are exposed to two things. If it's a REIT has a lot of uh, shopping center or commercial REITs, you're exposed to growth. But at the same time, if interest rate goes down, you also benefit. Because if the REIT uh, uh, is able to fix a lot of rental, so it's like a bond with fixed coupon. So if you are very expert, you know this. You know this REIT already fixes cash flows. And then interest rates actually came down because central bank just eased. And the decision to allocate to REITs is actually related to economic environment. Growth and inflation and interest rates. So those are things that um, stash away uh, monitors. And um, and from that angle, I'm very positive on read. But then I think that's the biggest and uh, most important question is, is the economic environment suitable for REITs? And it, it is right now. It is pretty good for, for the asset class right now. Okay, that's, that's interesting because REITs in particular have had an amazing, ridiculous run-up since January this year. I think some of the blue chip REITs like uh, CMT or MCT, they are trading at 4.5% mm-hmm. yield. So you still think they're a good investment at, at this point in time? Uh, I wouldn't comment on the specific REITs, uh, but some REITs, uh, especially those with a uh, higher percentage of rentals already, uh, already fixed for the next two years, are going to be very good for the next two years because they are fixing their rental yield now and yields are coming down. And trade war, economic environment, all this uncertainty is only good for you, right? So people will be more desperate for you. And, and hence, uh, this is a good time to just hold on to it. Hold on to it, but then don't think of it as one trade. Think of it as a portfolio. Yeah. But for REITs in particular, because a lot of their, their income comes from rental, and like you said, they are locking in quite high rents at this point in time. If over the next one or two years, the economy weakens, some of the companies have a tougher time paying their rents, they default, do you see this impacting REIT prices? No, I think it already has happened and we are fine. See, um, last two years, the, uh, you, can, you can probably say that the tenancy side is not really doing that well. There's lots, lots of turnover. And we already seen a huge contraction in Singapore's industrial output. Semiconductors has hit so badly. All the maximum bad news has already been in the market today. And yet it's been very resilient. And that's the reason why I think it's very positive. Because we have taken three major market corrections last two years. We've taken the bloodbath with supply chain disruptions from trade war and all that. And today, they are doing very fine. So that shows me resilience. And that's why I'm more positive about the sector uh, going forward. Okay, so the Federal Reserve, it looks a lot like they're going to start on their rate-cutting cycle soon, which means they're going to be in a low-yield environment for the next one or two years. What would be your recommended asset allocation, your recommended trade for such a low-yield kind of environment? Is it going to be REITs? Well, I we... I think um, the more I think about it, the more I like our current allocations at Stashaway. I remember when we first launched two years ago when markets was really strong, we got a lot of feedback that you guys are too conservative. We we tend to have a larger proportion of bonds. We also have a, a more allocation to dollar, Japanese yen, Swiss franc, and the, the safe haven currencies in our global portfolio. Um, so people sort of think that uh, like Stashaway is a bit conservative and times are good. Uh, we want more return, more risk. But it turns out by today, we haven't really changed a lot. We fine-tune here and there, but the portfolio has been very resilient. I, I'm actually liking where we are right now. 
And the precise reason is because we have adequate amount of fixed income, we have adequate amount of uh, safe haven currency exposure to protect uh, a Singaporean or Malaysian or a non-US uh, person from uncertainty, right? So um, I think the short answer is that we haven't really, we're not going to change our allocation because the yields are coming lower. We always think about it as a balance, risk balancing act uh, when we design a portfolio. Um, when, because uh, we're not going to chase return or chase you, um, something that we are very cautious with. Since Stash Away was created about two years ago, I think <coughs> you guys have grown into one of the largest and most popular robo-advisors in Singapore. But over the longer term, let's say over the next five to ten years, how do you see the robo-advisor space evolving? Um, so Generally to the robo-industry or specific to Stash Away? Generally across Generally, the industry. Right. Um, I think the robo-industry will, um, will be more participants, but the lines will be blurred because you will see more collaborations between uh, traditional institutions and the newbies. Um, so we, see, we will see more and more of that. Um, we also probably will see tech firms getting into the digital wealth management space Right, the your evolution of the uh, the mobile wallet systems could probably incentivize them to also delve into a robo advisory sort of product. So uh, consumers are only going to benefit more with more choices, with more competition. Uh, that is the least I would expect. I know that a lot of the banks like DBS, uh, CIMB, they recently introduced their own robo advisor portfolio. Is this something that worries you guys? Um, no, not particularly. I think the industry is so new, we're barely even born. We, and we realize that the more competition comes in at this stage, the more public awareness there is, and we're actually benefiting from that too. The more you talk about someone else, the more statuary will come up as well, being part of the early participants, right? So I'm actually welcoming competition because we, I think we need it to get the public to be more comfortable with it. And maybe five years later, we can worry about um, competition. Right now, it's healthy. It's necessary. Yeah. That's a great one. <laughs> we'll come back to this five years' time and see yes. See how you guys are doing. <laughs> In an ideal world, what do you hope to achieve with Stash Away? Uh, it's very simple. Um, I have my daughter in the class and her, her classmates and a, a lot of parents have signed up to Stash Away as well. Wow, wow. So it would be personally fulfilling if one day all my daughter's classmates and friends, they are going to universities funded by their parents' decision to invest in an education goal on Stash Away's platform. That would be extremely fulfilling as a person. My dad will probably have a profound impact on my daughter as well. And so I just want my daughter, my children to be proud of what I've done. So Stash Away is one of those means of uh, hoping to, to, one of those means that I can, I can try to get there. That's really interesting because in my parents' time, when they were saving up for my university education, they put it all in an endowment fund, they bought it through an insurance agent, yeah. and, and they let it compound over 20 years. Going forward, do you think this approach, investing with Stash Away, investing in the markets directly is going to be superior to something like an endowment fund? I think what we're trying to do with those guys are the same idea, except that their fees are prohibitively high. They, and it's not great. I would say that industry, the, the, on the, uh, the traditional side of the industry, 
they were stuck with uh, a, a skew system of rewarding distributors. So the fund manager actually get paid less than the distribution. Um, and so I think with technology, um, with more online marketing tools that institutions can use, the fat that's, that's currently being consumed by the distribution side will over time slim down, resulting in lower fees to the clients and perhaps also better treatment for the fund managers who deserves it. So I don't actually have an issue with the active fund managers. In fact, we are very sympathetic with the environment, and I think uh, distributions is too fat. So that was the key problem there. And the stash away model is to address it head on. We don't have distribution costs. We directly internalize our own marketing strategy, own onboarding, own sign-up, on our app, on our websites. We cut away the middleman that's chewing up returns. And so we're just trying to achieve the same philosophy of achieving our users' goal in the long term, but we added a layer of cutting out the fats and passing those savings back to users. So that's, that's where we are leading by examples. Um, but I think in, over the long term, everybody will get to the same point. Actually, on that note, there's a huge amount of uh, in, individuals who are moving their money from active management to a more passive management where they just buy S&P 500, they just buy STI ETF. So an approach like this versus Stash Away, what kind of advantages do you think Stash Away brings to the table? I think, first of all, um, the person may not have the risk profile that's directly comparable to the S&P 500. If you ask me what's the extreme value at risk of the S&P 500, it's around 54.5% back in 2008. So the person will always take up that tail risk of losing that much money by being concentrated in one asset class. What Stashway comes in is to make it diversified and... We also rebalance it uh, very precisely with no extra charge. And uh, then the beauty beyond that is also we so-called re-optimize the portfolio. When economic environment changes, we may change allocations. Uh, of course, you get to decide whether you want to accept the change or not. We recommend you a change. So, for example, if inflation goes up further, then, and then these things are very cyclical. They last for a while. And the stash rate will recommend you to buy a bit more inflation link bonds, buy a bit more gold, a bit more natural resources to protect yourself. You can agree or disagree, but then that is a free service. So there's a lot of uh, additional services that we have brought beyond just investing in one market. One last question for you, Freddie. Is there any misconception that you think people have about stash away that you want to correct? I think the fact that we are core a robo-advisor um, brings with it some misconception. Stash away, for, I think in general, for any algorithms to be well thought out, it has to have a lot of human guidance. Because a machine, Skynet, may not, the objective is to maximize something. But what is that something? Is it for the benefit of mankind or for the benefit of something else? So we need to define the boundaries, define the objectives of the algorithms, so the algorithms will work for the humans. And algorithms also need to be improved over time, need to be more holistic. So there's always human involvement with constantly improving the product or launching new products. We're not going to stop here. We have a five-year roadmap, and we're going to launch many different types of product that address different needs of different people. So this is just the beginning. Um, so there's a lot more to do, and human, the human element is always necessary. 
as in international chess. <laughs> a mediocre software with a mediocre chess master would beat either Gary Kasparov or Deep Blue. So it's always a hybrid that makes the best performance. Okay, Freddie, thanks again for, for your time and being on the Financial House podcast. Before we end, just one quick question for you. If you can sum up all your advice to a 25-year-old investor in one simple sentence, what would that be? Start early. Don't borrow money to invest.